Chapter Eighteen Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lemoyne. Green KRI.com. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Eighteen. Away! Our journey lies through dell and dingle, Where the blithe fawn trips by its timid mother, Where the broad oak with intercepting boughs Checkers the sunbeam in the greensward alley. Up and away! For lovely paths are these to tread When the glad sun is on his throne, Less pleasant and less safe when Cynthia's lamp With doubtful glimmer lights the dreary forest. Ettrick Forest. When Cedric the Saxon saw his son drop down senseless in the lists at Ashby, his first impulse was to order him into the custody and care of his own attendants. But the words choked in his throat. He could not bring himself to acknowledge, in presence of such an assembly, the son whom he had renounced and disinherited. He ordered, however, Oswald to keep an eye upon him and directed that officer, with two of his serfs, to convey Ivanhoe to Ashby as soon as the crowd had dispersed. Oswald, however, was anticipated in this good office. The crowd dispersed, indeed, but the knight was nowhere to be seen. It was in vain that Cedric's cupbearer looked around for his young master. He saw the bloody spot on which he had lately sunk down, but himself he saw no longer. It seemed as if the fairies had conveyed him from the spot. Perhaps Oswald, for the Saxons were very superstitious, might have adopted some such hypothesis to account for Ivanhoe's disappearance, had he not suddenly cast his eye upon a person attired like a squire, in whom he recognized the features of his fellow-servant, Gurth. Anxious concerning his master's fate, and in despair at his sudden disappearance, the translated swineherd was searching for him everywhere, and had neglected, in doing so, the concealment on which his own safety depended. Oswald deemed it his duty to secure Gurth, as a fugitive of whose fate his master was to judge. Renewing his enquiries concerning the fate of Ivanhoe, the only information which the cupbearer could collect from the bystanders was, that the knight had been raised with care by certain well-attired grooms, and placed in a litter belonging to a lady among the spectators, which had immediately transported him out of the press. Oswald, on receiving this intelligence, resolved to return to his master for farther instructions, carrying along with him Gurth, whom he considered in some sort as a deserter from the service of Cedric. The Saxon had been under very intense and agonizing apprehensions concerning his son, for nature had asserted her rights, in spite of the patriotic stoicism which labored to disown her. But no sooner was he informed that Ivanhoe was in careful and probably friendly hands, that the paternal anxiety which had been excited by the dubiety of his fate gave way anew to the feeling of injured pride and resentment at what he termed Wilfred's filial disobedience. "'Let him wander his way,' said he. "'Let those leech his wounds for whose sake he encountered them.' He is fitter to do the juggling tricks of the Norman chivalry than to maintain the fame and honour of his English ancestry with the glaive and brown bill, 
the good old weapons of his country. "'If to maintain the honour of ancestry,' said Rowena, who was present, "'it is sufficient to be wise in counsel and brave in execution, "'to be boldest among the bold and gentlest among the gentle, "'I know no voice save his father's. "'Be silent, Lady Rowena. "'On this subject only I hear you not. "'Prepare yourself for the prince's festival. "'We have been summoned thither with unwanted circumstance of honour and of courtesy.' such as the haughty Normans have rarely used to our race since the fatal day of Hastings. <sighs> Thither will I go, were it only to show these proud Normans how little the fate of a son who could defeat their bravest can affect a Saxon. Thither, said Rowena, do I not go, and I pray you to beware lest what you mean for courage and constancy shall be accounted hardness of heart. "'Remain at home, then, ungrateful lady,' answered Cedric. "'Thine is the hard heart which can sacrifice the well of an oppressed people to an idle and unauthorized attachment. I seek the noble Athelstane, and with him attend the banquet of John of Anjou.' He went accordingly to the banquet, of which we have already mentioned the principal events. Immediately upon retiring from the castle, the Saxon thanes, with their attendants, took horse, and it was during the bustle which attended their doing so, that Cedric, for the first time, cast his eyes upon the deserter Gurth. The noble Saxon had returned from the banquet, as we have seen, in no very placid humour, and wanted but a pretext for wreaking his anger upon some one. "'The jives!' he said. "'The jives! Oswald! Hundbert! Dogs and villains! Why leave ye the knave unfettered?' Without daring to remonstrate, the companions of Gurth bound him with a halter, as the readiest cord which occurred. He submitted to the operation without remonstrance, except that, darting a reproachful look at his master, he said, "'This comes of loving your flesh and blood better than mine own.' "'To horse and forward,' said Cedric. "'It is indeed full time,' said the noble Athelstane. For if we ride not the faster, the worthy abbot Waltheof's preparations for a rare supper will be altogether spoiled. Begin note. A rare supper was a night meal, and sometimes signified a collation, which was given at a late hour, after the regular supper had made its appearance. The travellers, however, used such speed as to reach the convent of St. Withold's before the apprehended evil took place. The abbot, himself of ancient Saxon descent, received the noble Saxons with the profuse and exuberant hospitality of their nation, wherein they indulged to a late or a rather an early hour. Nor did they take leave of their reverend host the next morning, until they had shared with him a sumptuous refection. As the cavalcade left the court of the monastery, an incident happened somewhat alarming to the Saxons, who, of all people of Europe, were most addicted to a superstitious observance of omens, and to whose opinions can be traced most of those notions upon such subjects, still to be found among our popular antiquities. For the Normans, being a mixed race, and better informed according to the information of the times, had lost most of the superstitious prejudices which their ancestors had brought from Scandinavia, and piqued themselves upon thinking freely on such topics. In the present instance, the apprehension of impending evil was inspired by no less respectable a prophet 
than a large, lean, black dog, which, sitting upright, howled most piteously as the foremost riders left the gate, and presently afterwards, barking wildly and jumping to and fro, seemed bent upon attaching itself to the party. "'I like not that music, Father Cedric,' said Athelstane, for by this title of respect he was accustomed to address him. "'Nor I, either, uncle,' said Wamba. "'I greatly fear we shall have to pay the piper.' "'In my mind,' said Athelstane, upon whose memory the abbot's good ale, for Burton was already famous for that genial liquor, had made a favourable impression, "'in my mind we had better turn back and abide with the abbot until the afternoon. It is unlucky to travel where your path is crossed by a monk, a hare, or a howling dog, until you have eaten your next meal.' "'Away!' said Cedric impatiently. "'The day is already too short for our journey, for the dog I know it to be the cur of the runaway slave Gert, a useless fugitive like its master.' So saying, and rising at the same time in his stirrups, impatient at the interruption of his journey, he launched his javelin at poor Fangs. For Fangs it was, who, having traced his master thus far upon his stolen expedition, had here lost him, and was now on his uncouth way, rejoicing at his reappearance. The javelin inflicted a wound upon the animal's shoulder, and narrowly missed pinning him to the earth and Fangs fled, howling from the presence of the enraged Thane. Gert's heart swelled within him, for he felt this meditated slaughter of his faithful adherent in a degree much deeper than the harsh treatment he had himself received. Having in vain attempted to raise his hand to his eyes, he said to Wamba, who, seeing his master's ill-humour, had prudently retreated to the rear, "'I pray thee, do me the kindness to wipe my eyes with the skirt of thy mantle. The dust offends me, and these bonds will not let me help myself one way or another. Wamba did him the service he required, and they rode side by side for some time, during which Gurth maintained a moody silence. At length he could repress his feelings no longer. "'Friend Wamba,' said he, of all those who are fools enough to serve Cedric, thou alone hast dexterity enough to make thy folly acceptable to him. Go to him, therefore, and tell him that neither for love nor fear will Gurth serve him longer. He may strike the head from me, he may scourge me, he may load me with irons, but henceforth he shall never compel me either to love or to obey him. Go to him, then, and tell him that Gurth, the son of Beowulf, renounces his service. Assuredly, said Wamba, fool as I am, I shall not do your fool's errand. Cedric hath another javelin stuck into his girdle, and thou knowest he does not always miss his mark. I care not, replied Gurth, how soon he makes a mark of me. Yesterday he left Wilfred, my young master, in his blood. Today he has striven to kill before my face the only other living creature that ever showed me kindness. By St. Edmund, St. Dunstan, St. Withold, and St. Edward the Confessor, and every other Saxon saint in the calendar. For Cedric never swore by any that was not of Saxon lineage, and all his household had the same limited devotion. I will never forgive him. To my thinking now, said the jester, 
who was frequently wont to act as peacemaker in the family. Our master did not propose to hurt Fangs, but only to affright him. For if you observed, he rose in his stirrups as thereby meaning to overcast the mark, and so he would have done, but Fangs, happening to bound up at the very moment, received a scratch, which I will be bound to heal with a penny's breadth of tar. If I thought so, said Gurth, if I could but think so, but no, I saw the javelin was well aimed. I heard it whiz through the air with all the wrathful malevolence of him who cast it, and it quivered after it had pitched in the ground, as if with regret for having missed its mark. By the hog, dear to St. Anthony, I renounce him! And the indignant swineherd resumed his sullen silence, which no efforts of the jester could again induce him to break. Meanwhile, Cedric and Athelstane, the leaders of the troop, conversed together on the state of the land, on the dissensions of the royal family, on the feuds and quarrels among the Norman nobles, and on the chance which there was that oppressed Saxons might be able to free themselves from the yoke of the Normans, or at least to elevate themselves into national consequence and independence during the civil convulsions which were likely to ensue. On this subject Cedric was all animation. The restoration of the independence of his race was the idol of his heart, to which he had willingly sacrificed domestic happiness and the interests of his own son. But, in order to achieve this great revolution in favour of the native English, it was necessary that they should be united among themselves, and act under an acknowledged head. The necessity of choosing their chief from the Saxon blood royal was not only evident in itself, but had been made a solemn condition by those whom Cedric had entrusted with his secret plans and hopes. Athelstane had this quality, at least, and although he had few mental accomplishments or talents to recommend him as leader, he had still a goodly person, was no coward, had been accustomed to martial exercises, and seemed willing to defer to the advice of counsellors more wise than himself. Above all, he was known to be liberal and hospitable, and believed to be good-hearted. But whatever pretensions Athelstane had to be considered as head of the Saxon confederacy, many of that nation were disposed to prefer the title of the Lady Rowena, who drew her descent from Alfred, and whose father, having been a chief renowned for wisdom, courage, and generosity, his memory was highly honoured by his oppressed countrymen. It would have been no difficult thing for Cedric, had he been so disposed, to have placed himself at the head of a third party, as formidable at least as any of the others. To counterbalance their royal descent, he had courage, activity, energy, and, above all, that devoted attachment to the cause which had procured him the epithet of the Saxon, and his birth was inferior to none, excepting only that of Athelstane and his ward. These qualities, however, were unalloyed by the slightest shade of selfishness, and instead of dividing yet farther his weakened nation by forming a faction of his own, it was a leading part of Cedric's plan to extinguish that which already existed by promoting a marriage betwixt Rowena and Athelstane. An obstacle occurred to this his favourite project in the mutual attachment of his ward and his son, 
and hence the original cause of the banishment of Wilfred from the house of his father. This stern measure Cedric had adopted in the hopes that, during Wilfred's absence, Rowena might relinquish her preference. But in this hope he was disappointed, a disappointment which might be attributed in part to the mode in which his ward had been educated. Cedric, to whom the name of Alfred was as that of a deity, had treated the sole remaining scion of that great monarch with a degree of observance such as, perhaps, was in those days scarce paid to an acknowledged princess. Rowena's will had been in almost all cases a law to his household, and Cedric himself, as if determined that her sovereignty should be fully acknowledged, within that little circle at least, seemed to take a pride in acting as the first of her subjects. Thus trained in the exercise not only of free will, but despotic authority, Rowena was, by her previous education, disposed both to resist and to resent any attempt to control her affections, or dispose of her hand contrary to her inclinations, and to assert her independence in a case which even those females who have been trained up to obedience and subjection are not infrequently apt to dispute the authority of guardians and parents. The opinions which she felt strongly she avowed boldly, and Cedric, who could not free himself from his habitual deference to her opinions, felt totally at a loss how to enforce his authority of guardian. It was in vain that he attempted to dazzle her with the prospect of a visionary throne. Rowena, who possessed strong sense, neither considered his plan as practicable, nor as desirable so far as she was concerned, could it have been achieved. Without attempting to conceal her avowed preference of Wilfred of Ivanhoe, she declared that were that favoured knight out of question, she would rather take refuge in a convent than share a throne with Athelstane, whom, having always despised, she now began, on account of the trouble she received on his account, thoroughly to detest. Nevertheless, Cedric, whose opinions of women's constancy was far from strong, persisted in using every means in his power to bring about the proposed match, in which he conceived he was rendering an important service to the Saxon cause. The sudden and romantic appearance of his son in the lists at Ashby he had justly regarded as almost a death's blow to his hopes. His paternal affection, it is true, had for an instant gained the victory over pride and patriotism, but both had returned in full force, and under their joint operation he was now bent upon making a determined effort for the union of Athelstane and Rowena, together with expediting those other measures which seemed necessary to forward the restoration of Saxon independence. On this last subject he was now labouring with Athelstane, not without having reason every now and then to lament, like Hotspur, that he should have moved such a dish of skimmed milk to so honourable an action. Athelstane, it is true, was vain enough, and loved to have his ears tickled with tales of his high descent, and of his right by inheritance to homage and sovereignty. But his petty vanity was sufficiently gratified by receiving this homage at the hands of his immediate attendants, and of the Saxons who approached him. If he had the courage to encounter danger, he at least hated the trouble of going to seek it. And while he agreed in the general principles laid down by Cedric concerning the claim of the Saxons to independence, 
and was still more easily convinced of his own title to reign over them when that independence should be attained, yet when the means of asserting these rights came to be discussed, he was still Athelstane the unready, slow, irresolute, procrastinating, and unenterprising. The warm and impassioned exhortations of Cedric had as little effect upon his impassive temper as red-hot balls alighting in the water, which produced a little sound and smoke, and are instantly extinguished. If, leaving this task, which might be compared to spurring a tired jade, or to hammering upon cold iron, Cedric fell back to his ward Rowena, he received little more satisfaction from conferring with her. For as his presence interrupted the discourse between the lady and her favourite attendant, upon the gallantry and fate of Wilfred, Elgitha failed not to revenge both her mistress and herself by recurring to the overthrow of Athelstane in the lists, the most disagreeable subject which could greet the ears of Cedric. To this sturdy Saxon, therefore, the day's journey was fraught with all manner of displeasure and discomfort, so that he more than once internally cursed the tournament, and him who had proclaimed it together with his own folly in ever thinking of going thither. At noon, upon the motion of Athelstane, the travellers paused in a woodland shade by a fountain, to repose their horses and partake of some provisions, with which the hospitable abbot had loaded a sumpter mule. Their repast was a pretty long one, and these several interruptions rendered it impossible for them to hope to reach Rotherwood without travelling all night, a conviction which induced them to proceed on their way at a more hasty pace than they had hitherto used. End of chapter 18